book of James, or the epistle, the letter of James, chapter 2. Our text this morning is beginning in verse 1. As we uh, jump back into our study of James, we we started walking through James in October. Uh, October 21 was the first Sunday that we spent in James, and so uh, we took a break during December for Advent, and so now we are uh, getting back into our study of James, beginning in chapter 2. The title of the message this morning is Faith in the Royal Law, and that is that uh, as believers in Christ and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the royal law that James points out is how we interact with others. It has to do, and it governs, it calls us to a life of obedience that impacts the way that we treat others. And so we'll, we'll see that in a, in a few moments. But James is really concerned in the epistle, just to kind of give us a, a recap, he's really concerned with the practical outworking of one's faith for the church, for the believer in Jesus Christ. How is our faith being lived out daily in the practicum of life? That is, how is the Word of God impacting our lives so that it changes and transforms what we do, the things that we do, how we interact with others? And in chapter 1, he really kind of laid out the groundwork for much of what he will discuss throughout the remaining portion of the letter. And so as we approach chapter 2 this morning, we find this issue of one's faith and how one's faith plays out in daily living among the body of Christ. So if you find your place in chapter 2, verse 1, say amen. Let us begin reading. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes... And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And if you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act to those as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who does not show mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, 
I pray that you would take this very simple truth and sear it into our souls. And Father, that you would teach us and instruct us from your word. And God, that you would so grip our hearts with the truth of your word that we would not just dismiss anything about your word, but that we would long to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be a a people who hear and read and see the truth of your word and we want and long and desire to pattern our lives after your word. So God, I pray this morning that you would grow us in our likeness of you. Lord Jesus, that you would fashion us and shape us and mold us into your likeness. Lord, may we be a people that are faithful and true. And speak to us, O Lord our God, and teach us your ways, which are everlasting. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As I began reading this passage and praying over it for... Uh, in preparation for for today, uh, one of the thoughts that really struck me was, what is the church? How are, how, how are the people of the church to interact with one another? When we ask this question, what is the church, we, we would understand biblically that the church is it's a group, a, a collection, an assembly of God's people. It is God's people indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One body under the head who is Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, the the redeemed people of God who are saved by His grace and saved for His glory and are set apart to worship Him and all that we say and do. Hence what He says down in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The The church is the people of God who are submitted and surrendered to one Lord, one Savior. This is what the Apostle Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 4. Not, not wanting to read in church, Paul's ecclesiology to, to James and the church there, but what Paul is advocating for in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just also that you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians chapter 4, that is to understand the the interaction and the working of the church as God's body, as God's people. And there is some foundational element here that when it comes to the church, when Christ, uh, when Christ says that the church will be established and the gates of hell will not prevail, and we see in Acts chapter 2, and uh, when, when on that day of Pentecost the church is established there and the coming of God's Spirit is poured out upon His people and the gospel is proclaimed, there is a foundational element of the church here where there is a fellowship, there is a connectedness, there is a, a centering and a revolving around Jesus Christ. And this is really the heart of what James is speaking to. That the church ought to be a people of God who are gathered together in unity of faith and love and exemplify the love of Christ to one another. Have you ever had one of those moments where you opened your mouth 
and you said something that you really did not mean to say in the way that it, it came out. Or maybe you did something or even didn't do something that was noticeable, but the problem was it reflected more about you and your character in a negative light than what you had hoped to reflect. Have you ever had that happen? Do you know, understand what I'm saying? It, kinda, it, it shows something about who you are. You know, when those instances occur in our lives, and if they haven't occurred in your life, then I pray that God will open your eyes to see that they really have occurred in your life. Because the reality is we all have those experiences and those moments, those instances where this occurs in our life, and, and it's incredibly humbling. They leave no room for pride when these occurrences take place, these instances take place. It's as if we want to really kind of crawl under a rock somewhere and, and just hide. <laughs> no one can see us, right? We just kind of want to take refuge right then and there. Because what, what's happened? This big gap, our character flaw, has really been exposed about us. We've revealed something about ourselves that's very unpleasant. And if we're wise, these moments can really become a great catalyst to our faith by God's grace, of course, but they can really become a catalyst to our faith that challenges us and causes us to, to grow. Well, I, I almost picture that that's really what's happening here in chapter 2 as James begins to address the assembly of God's people. There's an embarrassing moment and the church has, has been found out. Their discriminatory actions reveal much about the true nature of their faith walk, how they are interacting with one another, and how their faith is really being applied and played out on a daily basis. And James picks up their weakness and he addresses it head on. And what might seem like a very small and menial and insignificant thing for us, we must recognize that it is a very real and a very hard and difficult thing that when we come to come to, to, to grips with it in our own life, we've got to ask ourselves, is discrimination or partiality or favoritism something that is reflected in our own lives? And so the first point I want us to see this morning is that favoritism discredits faith. Favoritism discredits faith. Now, James is not saying that partiality nullifies or cancels a person's faith. But what James would contend is that a person who continually exhibits this tendency to show partiality, to show favoritism, when a person continually exhibits this in his or her life and leaves this area unchecked, then that person's faith is at least questionable. They ought to be questioning why this action or this attitude has become pervasive in their life. Kind of a stinging point. He says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That is, with partiality. Don't hold your faith in Christ with, with a partiality, with thinking that it's okay to show favoritism or partiality. Because the reality is that favoritism really misses the foundational element of faith in Christ. 
Favoritism misses the foundational element of faith in Christ. So he says, my brethren, believer, I'll I'll say it as James does. He says, my brothers and sisters. What he's saying in verse 1 is that really we bring nothing to the table in our salvation. My Lord, Jesus Christ, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. We must recognize that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. There is really nothing we can offer Jesus when we come to faith in Him and we come to Him. This was magnified in the the words of Augustus Toplady in the hymn that he wrote, Rock of Ages. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, make me pure. Second verse, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, that is the Lord God, thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, when it comes to our salvation, there really is nothing that we bring to the table. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Why? Well, when speaking of our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, James is commanding the church... This is a command. Don't hold your faith with personal favoritism. Literally, what he means is, don't receive the face, meaning to to make judgments. Don't make judgments or biased distinctions based on external conditions or, or, or based on appearances, based on societal standing or based on wealth or based on ethnicity. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism, an attitude of favoritism. And that is to say that faith in Christ is really incompatible with partiality. It's incompatible with favoritism because to come to faith in Christ first, it necessitates something. It necessitates that we would have a low view of ourselves before God. It necessitates that we would truly see ourselves before holy God and in comparison with His glory, we would recognize and realize that there is no room left in any way for a self-centered or a self-absorbed way of living. And this is particularly challenging, I think, for the church in America today, that we would not be self-absorbed or self-seeking in our thinking, in our thought life in our approach to worship, in our approach to our assembly, our our gathering together. And it is to have a low view of oneself before God. And this really is the challenge for the church today. But he 
not only speaks about holding this faith in our glorious Lord, he speaks about this glory, the glorious Lord, the glory of our Lord. And this word glory, it calls to mind's eye the exalted Lord Jesus. He is the King of glory who dwells in unapproachable light, God himself. And the Christian standard of worth is not measured by any worldly achievement or lack of achievement but solely by the glory of God in Christ. The illuminating light of Christ reveals every dark corner of our lives, of the believer's life, and therefore when we come to God, we are all equal in our need for His mercy and His grace. The point that James is making is that when we come to Christ, there's no room for personal favoritism to be shown, or partiality to be shown to others when we truly recognize our condition before the ever-living, holy, infinitely eternal God is poor, impoverished. How then can we show partiality to others when we ourselves are just on the same level as anybody and everybody else? So he gives us an example of the favoritism that was being shown in verse 2 through 4. A man comes into your assembly, he says, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. But you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes. This distinction that's being made is there's one who has come into the assembly, and when he came in, he was dressed very nicely, and he had on Nice jewelry. In fact, the word for the clothing he was wearing was, uh, it meant bright. It meant fine clothing. It was bright clothing, which was, of course, a sign of a person's wealth and a person's standing in society. But then there was also one who came into the assembly, and he came in wearing soiled clothing, dirty, shabby, ragged clothing, and then the distinction has been made in the midst of the assembly. And what happened was the people came to the one that was dressed nicely, wearing the nice clothes, and said, now you come and you sit here. You sit in this place. You sit by us. We want you to sit here in this place. And this is a place of honor. But they say to the poor one, you sit there, over there, or you stand there, or, or you sit by my footstool. And this footstool... Literally, it's a, one of two things can be stated in saying you sit by my footstool. One is it's just a, a place of lowliness and a derogatory place for a person to sit. Or the other is it's a, an enemy and it's referencing putting the foot on the neck of an enemy when you say sit at my footstool. Now there are really two possible scenarios here in verses 2 through 4 and for this entire passage where this scenario can be playing out. One is it would be being played out in a worship service where people come and they gather together. They call it the assembly in verse 2. For if a man comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring, but the word there in the New Testament is synagogue. It's one of the only times that the word is used to speak about, synagogue would be used to speak about God's people gathering together to worship in the New Testament sense. All the other times that this word is used or that the word is used to referred to God's people gathering together to worship in the New Testament would be ecclesia for assembly. It would be the church. In fact, James uses that in 
chapter 5 when he speaks about the church gathering. In verse 14 of chapter 5, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over them. And so we know that there's the understanding of the church gathered as the assembly. The other possible scenario is that the church is here at a judicial setting and a judicial gathering where they are going to be carrying out some judicious act. And you've got a poor and a rich man coming in and they are looking at these two different men in a way where they are making a judgment and a distinction before anything has, has even been said or done just based upon the outward appearance And really, I I can't give you the answer as to whether or not this is occurring in the midst of the worship assembly or in the midst of a judicial body of the church. But what we can understand here is that there is a judgment and a distinction being made. And that judgment and that distinction is being made unfairly simply on the basis of of the way a person looks or the way a person is, is, is dressed or perhaps the way a person smells or perhaps the way that a person the societal standing that a person has, the wealth of a person. There there is a discrimination that is happening among the people of God in such a way that it should not be. And it's unfair and it's unjust. And James is calling the people to task. He's calling the people to understand and to repent. He says, "If if, if you pay special attention to the one, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, in verse 4, with evil motives. In other words, they were not interested in fairness or equity. Instead of, instead of being self-absorbed and, and caring more for their own gain, James is calling them to, uh, to be fair and equitable in their worship or in their gathering together. And so, in verses 5 through 7, I think we see the the kingdom reality of what James is calling the people to. And that is faith at work in verses 5 through 7. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? I think what James is teaching us in in saying here is that faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ doesn't work this way. It doesn't work that we would show partiality or favoritism. It's not the way of God to do this. In fact, in Deuteronomy 10, 17, the law states, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe acts ten thirty four. peter opening his mouth said i most certainly understand now that god is not one to show partiality in romans two eleven, for there is no partiality with god get the picture there's no partiality with god god is impartial equitable fair and for the people of god to be gathered in an assembly and to be acting in a way that's contrary to god's prompting and leading for his people to act It's sin. And so James is challenging God's people. He's challenging the church, the assembly, as they gather together to be fair, 
Not to be judgmental, but to be fair in their dealings with one another. The kingdom reality is that faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ does not work in the way that the church is carrying it out. They're not operating in the way that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth that we must see is that as people of God, we must learn to value what Christ values. And so in verse 5, when he says, listen, it's this command. He's saying, listen, hear this out. And then he's using stern, but he's also using kind of fatherly care, pastoral language when he says, my brethren. It's stern, but he's, he's tender. He's saying, you've done the very opposite of the ways of God. You are living, you are giving the seat of honor to the very ones, listen, who oppress you and pervert justice and exploit the poor. And you're doing the same thing in dishonoring the poor and making judgments. Verse 6, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? In other words, he's saying you've stopped valuing the soul of man by placing value upon the social standing of the man. And what has happened is for the church it has skewed their gospel perspective. You've allowed your personal preferences, he says, to influence your faith and you've shown favoritism and and this is not the way of God to show favoritism. So we've already seen in chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 he says but the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position there is this there is this struggle and this challenge that's even being worked out among the people of God and we saw it back in chapter 1 he says the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away The sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off, but the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And the point that James made then is very similar to the point that he makes now, that as the people of God we must learn to value the things that God values. And the things which God values are not the temporal or the material things that we see in this life. The things which God values are the eternal things, the soul of mankind. And by dishonoring the poor man in the midst of the assembly, they have dishonored God himself. They have made a judgment based upon this man's outward appearance that his soul is not as important or is not as worthy as the rich man's soul. See the problem with this? To show favoritism, it dismisses one's faith. It detracts from one's faith because it, it begins to miss that at the cross and before the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all equal. There are not distinctions made by God in the way that we make distinctions. Our ways are not the same as His ways. And it is completely and perfectly clear that James is making this point here. For wealthy believers, we have a responsibility as a wealthy believer before God to use wealth for God's glory in a manner consistent with His calling. 
and to be dependent on God for provision and not on oneself for provision. And for responsibility of poor believers, we have a responsibility before God as poor brothers and sisters to be content with God's gifting and provision and and to seek God's glory and not to seek the wealth of man. See, the point is that we are to serve one another. This is God's way in his kingdom. It matters not a person's gifting by the Holy Spirit nor the amount of their financial contribution, nor their level of service in the church, a person's physical appearance or social standing, etc. Whatever classification you want to put in there, we must recognize there are things that would even tempt us to be partial in living out the gospel and upholding the standard of God's word. And we must seek to diminish those things so that we are an impartial people, so that we value the things that Christ himself values, the eternal worth of people, their souls. Faith at work, the kingdom reality is the soul is eternally valuable. And to do what this church has done is to diminish that which God has created and to devalue that which God highly values. But secondly, at this morning, not only does favoritism discredit our faith, favoritism dismisses Scripture. I want you to see the second point. Favoritism dismisses Scripture. We see it beginning in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, he says. This royal law that he's speaking about, what is this royal law? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, what, what is this royal law? Well, it's what we alluded to in the beginning this morning. It's our, our interaction. It governs our, our calls us to obedience in, in the gospel with our interactions between one another. And it can be summed up in this statement that Jesus himself makes in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-nine. To love one's neighbor as oneself. When Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replied in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And what James is saying here is that walking in obedience to God's command is is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, but that loving your neighbor as yourself takes care of the whole second half of the Ten Commandments. And the reason this is the royal law is because this is the law that King Jesus has come and has spoken of, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And if this is what God's way is in the kingdom, then how, how can we show partiality or our favoritism and so we see that favoritism negates the royal law we can certainly see and understand how showing favoritism goes against the royal law because it what happens when we show favoritism it says we value the soul of one individual over the other and what christ is calling us to is 
not to be partial or show favoritism in our dealings with each other, but to be fair and to be equitable. In fact, we'll see in a moment, it is to exercise mercy. But not only does favoritism negate the royal law, favoritism is sin. We need to hear that loud and clear this morning. Favoritism is sin. In verse 9, he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Right? For who for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Is it is it a shock to us that James takes this seemingly insignificant sin of partiality and compares it with the sin of adultery, or the sin of murder? Is it a shock to us that James would make this comparison? James is stating that to be partial and discriminatory against the poor or against others is to discriminate against God Himself. And to be convicted by the law as a transgressor is to sin. And to sin is to be worthy of the wrath of God and to keep the whole law and yet stumble in one small way, a seemingly small way, is to be guilty of all and to incur the condemnation of God. It may be a reference to chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 in the misuse of riches for the congregation that James lays out later. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh. Verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You see, the reality that James is pointing out for us this morning and showing the church then is that favoritism is sin and it is sin in such a way that it offends the holiness and the 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 ways of God it offends God himself it goes against the ways of God I'm sure that in each of our minds this morning as we've kind of sat here and walked through this text we've perhaps we've had flashed to mind a, an instance where we have shown favoritism or partiality or unjustly criticized or perhaps unjustly um, condemned somebody, maybe based upon an appearance, a first impression. And what we need to realize is at the very heart of our faith in Christ, this is not, this is not the way of God. This is not the kingdom reality that God has called us to walk in and to live in. In fact, in verses 12 through 13, we see the kingdom reality, faith at work. 
And that is what he says in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And then he says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. This law of liberty that he calls our attention to, that is what we looked at in verses 21 and 25 of chapter 1. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And then in verse 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And the picture that we saw then was the word of God implanted in the life of the believer. And that word growing up is the picture that is is being shown us and taught us there. That word of God implanted, growing up and saving our souls and then working within us so that we become doers of the word, And then he says in verse 25 of chapter 1, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. That is, that what happens when the word of God is in the life of the believer is it does this work of transformation in our life and grows us and we become doers of the word, not only hearers. And this law of liberty is the gospel of Christ that, that transforms us and sets us free from sin, and sets us free as bond slaves of Christ. And the gospel then affects and transforms every area of our lives. So look at what he says in the beginning of verse 12. So speak and so act, right? Everything we say, everything we do, to the most small, minute degree, even to the point where we would show partiality or favoritism, we are to be a peop- the people of God that have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ are to be a people who are equitable, who are fair, who are righteous. We are to, our, our interaction with others is to be godly, holy. We are to treat others as the way that we want to be treated Love your neighbor as yourself, the royal law. I know this is minute, but at the deepest level of who we are as believers in Christ, when our souls are evaluated before the Lord Jesus Christ, are we a people of of equity? Are we a people who are fair and impartial? Are we living according to the ways of God or according to our own ways? Are we a people that show mercy? For the judgment will be merciless. It will be without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, we are to be a people who are merciful toward one another and toward others. The kingdom reality is that God has been merciful toward me a sinner, and in turn, I ought to be merciful toward others because if I truly recognize God's mercy toward me and His compassion and His grace toward me, then I know that whatever some other man or woman might do to me, that it 
pales in comparison to the stench of my sin before God. And He Himself has been merciful to me. As I have transgressed the law of God and I have sinned against His holiness, so each one of us ought to have the view of our own selves that we would consider others as better than ourselves, that we would are, are more important than ourselves. We would be humble people recognizing before God that we ourselves are to be poor in spirit. We have no room to be partial and show favoritism, right? I mean, before God, we are equal. Brothers and sisters in Christ, unified in one spirit, we are to be a merciful people, an impartial people. And this morning, our challenge is simple. Yet, if we're not careful, we could callously dismiss the challenge laid before us by God's word. Our challenge this morning is to rid our lives of favoritism or partiality for it is sin. Recognizing that it's divisive in the kingdom of God. Recognizing that it is not of the ways of God, but it is of the ways of man. For it places value on a soul of a man in a way that God does not. And it devalues the the creation of God in each brother and sister. It tears down unity. It disunifies. It does not unify as the church is to be a people of God living according to His ways. You know, partiality tears down everything about community. Community is completely foreign to the ways of partiality. For we do not show favoritism or partiality in our dealings with one another, but we love one another. We exercise mercy toward one another. Let me tell you something. When that, is, is, when that characterizes the people of God, then others notice that. When that characterizes your life, my life, others will be drawn to that. We will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, will point others in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I want to exhort us and challenge us to really examine our lives, confess our sin before the Lord Jesus, repent before the Lord Jesus If this isn't an area of struggle for you, then I praise God for for that. But I want to ask you to pray for unity among our church this morning. Make that a point of prayer. Pray for unity. Pray that God would break down any walls and any temptations uh, toward divisiveness or toward partiality or favoritism. So I'm going to close us in prayer here and The challenge this morning is to come before the Lord, examining our hearts, confessing, repenting, and interceding on behalf of the people of Crosspoint here this morning. As I pray, I want to invite the the band to come forward and lead us in a uh, time of song and so that we would reflectively pray. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. Confessing, God, that 
we want to be surrendered to you even in the seemingly small areas, but recognizing, Lord, that sin before you is sin. So, Father, be merciful with us. Help us, God, to be merciful with one another. We pray for a unity among our body and in our dealings with one another that we would be an equitable people, a fair people, one that does not discriminate among the worldly ways, but one that looks to you and and seeks to follow you and walk in your ways. Strengthen us now, Lord Jesus, we pray, to respond and to live according to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand?